welcome to Plant Yourself. I'm your host, Howard Jacobson. Today I'm talking with Meryl Fury. Meryl is a registered nurse and she's also the CEO of the plant-based nutrition movement. And she's a fierce advocate for justice and sanity in a world which is currently lacking both. So we talk about how she went vegetarian at the age of 15 in her attempt to help her family make ends meet during economic troubling times. And her mother was like, no, you can't do that. You have to eat meat to be healthy. And Meryl refused and she left the meat on the plate. And then when her mother retaliated by making a meat sauce, um, she spat out the sauce that was coating her pasta. And she has been she won. She got to stay vegetarian. She later became vegan uh, for reasons of health, environment, animal ethics and all that. And she is still outlasting things, just as she outlasted her mother's insistence on eating meat 35 years ago. She's still striving to outlast the broken food and healthcare systems, particularly the ones that disproportionately harm people of color. And we had a long and far ranging and fun conversation. Don't miss the end where we talk about her favorite music picks, um, some of which are also mine. And it's just a really interesting, fun, lively conversation. And you can catch the video also um, at plantyourself.com slash four two nine. Before we get there, two quick announcements. One is the Wellstart Health Coach training begins first week in October. If you are interested in becoming a health coach or becoming a more proficient health coach with more tools in your toolkit. Specifically, I teach a reliable process for helping your clients get traction on the results that matter to them most in their health and in their lives. Or if you are a lifestyle medicine professional, an MD, an RN, a PT, an RD, and part of what makes you good is getting people to do what you tell them to do, then this is a really important, valuable skill set. And if you're interested, check it out. Wellstartcoach.com. It's a lot less money than most other coaching programs. It's 13 weeks of weekly classes, um, which is recorded lectures and then live practicum calls where we debrief your homework practice. And we also practice coaching each other. Um, you can go to wellstartcoach.com and you can see some of the reactions of people who've been through the program. We've had about 100 so far, and this is another run which will take us into January of 2021. Yay, 2021, I think, I hope. So if you're interested, again, wellstartcoach.com, read about it. And if you're interested, you can apply for an enrollment interview with me in which we'll figure out whether it's a good fit or not. Second thing is I want to remind you that this podcast does not take advertising and I tend not to do any sort of affiliate links. So my guests don't pay me for the privilege of appearing and pitching their programs and products on this podcast. And there are plenty of expenses associated with it, not least of which is my time on a weekly basis, which could be anywhere from five to 10 hours to hosting costs, to software, to hardware upgrades. Um, and I would love your help. So if you are a longtime listener or a new listener who has made this a part of your life and you appreciate the mission of what I'm trying to accomplish and you'd like to become a patron, either with a one time gift or an ongoing monthly contribution, that would really, really help out. And you can do so at plantyourself.com slash gift. 
Remember, this podcast is free for everyone and it's paid for by those who can afford it. So if you're one of those people, I would really appreciate your help. All right, let's get to today's conversation. Without further ado, Meryl Fury, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Well, thank you for having me, Howard. Nice to be here. Yeah, I, I, I love the background. It's like looks like distressed wood. Tell me, where, where, where are you? I am on my back porch. I have the absolute privilege and joy of living in a restored barn. <laughs> so this is the uh, siding with that. And my husband built the barn. So yeah. Wow. I, yeah, that's, this is the outside back porch that I'm on. See, my parents used to accuse me of living in a barn, but it wasn't a compliment. <laughs> right. They were asking you, right? <laughs> Not so much. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, we actually, we have that joke. <laughs> you live in a barn. <laughs> wow, it looks, looks beautiful. It <laughs> it's beautiful. It is a beautiful space. You did a great job on it. Yeah. Okay. Um, and, and where is that? Where, where do you live? I live in Kenosha, Wisconsin, which is about halfway between Milwaukee Wisconsin and Chicago, Illinois. I'm kind of like right on the state line between gotcha. Chicago and well, between Illinois and Wisconsin. Gotcha, gotcha. And we're and we're talking today because you are the CEO, right? Yes, president of and CEO a, of an impressive organization that has had to like hit the brakes hard and reinvent itself. Can you tell tell us a little bit about what what you do? Okay, so I am president and CEO of the plant based nutrition movement which is a nonprofit 501c3 that is up till now has been really housed or um, sort of located in the Chicagoland area. But since the whole coronavirus COVID thing, we, like you said, had to hit the brakes pretty hard and we've moved pretty much to completely online. In fact, we are, we've put everything, all of our programs um, kind of on hold while we reinvented ourselves, our strength, well, we were only two years old. And let me give you a little history. The person who founded the organization is a cardiologist who was based here in the Chicagoland area. His name is Dr. Stephen Loam. And um, he created the organization as a way to actually help people heal from heart disease. He's an interventional cardiologist and he certainly believes in the power of appropriate medicine, appropriate um, interventions, therapies, standard sort of American medical treatments for, for heart disease. But was pretty clear that a lot of the standard treatments don't actually heal the mm -hmm. human heart. And um, so he started this nonprofit as a way to get the word out without ruffling the feathers of the medical facilities where he was working. <laughs> and this was like, he wasn't telling them or, or there was enough of a firewall between his public activism and his professional work? Like, how, how, how does this not ruffle feathers? <laughs> I think it was a little bit of a tap dance that he had to do, <laughs> mm -hmm. sort of on the line and back and forth over the line. Um, he did once tell me a story about how, so he came from a family of like super heavyweight people. Mm. His mother, father, immediate family were up in the 300 pound range each, very large people. 
and he himself was beginning to tip the scales in a way a little bit heavier than he wanted to. Now, I have a dog who insists on barking when I'm on the phone. You know what? This is this is pandemic time. <laughs> <laughs> you could have you could have the rockets go behind you, and I wouldn't blink an eye anymore. You're right, right. <laughs> We're in quarantine still. Right. Anyway, <laughs> maybe, maybe maybe your dog will make an appearance, and everyone can go. Aww. He may. He may. It's it's absolutely 100% predictable that he's going to do that. Anyway, there he goes. So, <laughs> so um, anyway, by the time that um, Dr. Loam went through medical school and he had this sort of aha moment about how interventional cardiology is certainly appropriate and life-saving in so many, so, so many situations, prevention is a whole nother Thing, right and reversal mm-hmm. of disease is a whole nother thing and he started really delving into that and found whole food plant-based as you know lifestyle as a way to do that and um he and a group of his colleagues i believe decided you know what hold on one second let me just let the four-legged back in the house hold on sure that might be a good thing to edit out anyway <laughs> <laughs> So um, he and a group of his colleagues, also cardiologists, decided, you know, okay, this is the way, this is the thing. We're going to start teaching our patients this. We're going to start living this. We're going to walk the walk. We're going to talk the talk, and we're going to heal the world, which is what most medical people really want to do, right? Right. We go into it because we want to heal people. And they started doing this work and teaching their patients, and... um, at one point, I don't know if it was six, eight months into it, a year into it, I don't really know what the time frame was, but it wasn't long when one of his colleagues got called into the chief medical officer's office for the hospital system where they worked. And the colleague was thinking, oh yeah, we've been knocking this out of the park. Our interventions are down. Our you know, incidents of different problems are down. You know, We're doing less coronary artery bypass grafts, we're doing less echoes, we're doing less stints, we're doing all the, man, we're doing it. We're taking care of our people, you know? (laughs) So he's like, ready, goes into the chief medical officer's office and he sits down in the chair and, you know, he's like ready to get his props, you know, like bring me the love. And the CMO says, so yeah, it looks like you guys are changed up something in your protocols there. What's going on? I see your numbers are dropping. And the doctor says, yeah, isn't it great? We are knocking it out of the park. We're taking care of our patients. This is what we went to school for. And the CMO said, "Uh, yeah, not really. It's a problem. We hired you to bring in a certain amount of money. And if you're not doing these procedures and treatments and open heart surgeries, we do not have the finances to maintain this state-of-the-art facility. And beyond that, we don't have the finances to pay for the staff. We can't make any of our ends meet. Now, you, you said it was the chief medical officer. Are, you, are yeah. you sure you didn't mean the chief financial officer? No. No, it was the that was That wasn't a, a, a mis- misstatement. Statement. No. No. No, sadly. So... Um, the doctor who was there, like, all of a sudden had that, like, eye-opening moment, jaw-dropping moment. He was like, oh, my gosh. 
oh my gosh, well, we have to do something, you know, we can't just give up. <laughs> I mean, I have to, I have to be gainfully employed. So was I, he told I, you have to go back to the old way or else Basically you what he here. was told was um, if you don't bring in your share of the income, you'll have to find someplace else to work. Mm-hmm. So, and the, I, the chief, I'm, I'm trying to put myself in the mind of the chief medical officer. So like, I understand if this is Dunder Mifflin and like the sales of paper are down, yeah. like the purpose of, of a company is to sell stuff. Was, was there, and you, as you said earlier, like doctors go into medicine to heal people. Like what happened to his soul or his <laughs> brain that he wasn't able to see the, the, the irony, the ridiculousness, the heinousness of what had happened to his calculus? Well, you know, I can't really speak for what he was thinking or feeling at the time but I'm a registered nurse too. And I've spent a lot of time in the medical environment, the medical facility, or I'll say the medical industry in the United States is the only place I can speak about. That's the only place I've worked this way. Um, It's a business. That's what it is. We don't have socialized medicine here. We have fee for service and fee for service means, you know, you patients come in, somebody pays. That's how everybody, that's how the clinic stays open. That's how the bills get paid. That's how the overhead gets covered. It's, um, it's quite a conundrum to be a medical professional and realize that people are going to only, I don't even know how to say that, you know, people can only get so well, Mm before it starts to impact the financial health of the facility. Yeah, but that's, that's like saying, and I know we're on the same side here, but I'm, just, I'm feeling very cranky about this. Okay, so go ahead. I, I, just, <laughs> I just want to vent if that's all right. Uh, I mean, if I'm, if I'm looking for a car, yeah. I go to Consumer Reports and I see like which ones last the longest and I buy based on quality. Why, if, if, if medicine isn't a business, why don't we make decisions based on outcomes and value-based care and quality as opposed to just, you know, the, you know, it's like, I just, I don't want the, the car that weighs the most, like the most material that went into it. I want the car that's going to last and be safe and be comfortable. What, where's the disconnect? Well, I think, you know, you're right. This is the conundrum we find ourselves in all the time. This is part of why this is part of why we fight this ongoing rhetoric, this never solved problem of the continually spiraling cost of healthcare in America. This is part of it. Because there is there's a financial requirement. The American medical industry hires people. People need ever increasing pay. There's ever increasing overhead. And then, never mind. Howard, do you really want to talk about all this? I don't know. This is, 
this is huge. I mean, this, you, you seem you seem to have a very privileged position to understand it from both sides. Yes, so I do. I'm just so I'm just curious because what you said is also true of Volvo and Toyota and Acura and right. Yeah, the only the only challenge here is that you know we're dealing with human health. You know, so you know, okay. So for instance, let's take it back to food, right? Okay. Okay. So we know that the, let's say the USDA um, is the, the group or the entity, the, the, the agency association, right? That is responsible for determining which foods kind of flow into our food supply in lots of ways, right? Um, we also know that the USDA has like a dual purpose it's to decide what foods that the American public is able to get a hold of. And there's, you know, lots of impact on that. There's lots of different facets of that. But they also are responsible for maintaining the health of the agricultural community, right? Mm -hmm. So right. that the farmers have place to sell their products. And a lot of that, you know, is not only um, vegetables and fruits, it's animal products, right? Right. We know that it's the USDA that created the food pyramid, right? We, you can do this research. You can find this information. You, I'm sure you know all this stuff already, but you know, we know that the food pyramid was somehow truly, seriously misconstrued <laughs> so that um, you know, the bottom was grains and white and rich grain was okay as the major part of the part of the American diet for the longest time, that was the base of the triangle. Right. Mm -hmm. And at the tops, you know, then there's, you know, there's milk and there's meat and somewhere up here, there's, you know, fruits and vegetables. Right. Um, that was not truly based on science that had a lot to do with lobbying and stuff that happened to bring that forward to the USDA. So, you know, our, kind of the way I look at it is sadly the, the health of the American population has been up for sale or up for up, up to the highest bidder for a long time. Mm. And that's gotten us where we are, you know? So it's really okay. When you look at the, the way uh, things actually happen, not like it's okay morally or ethically, but it's okay because that's the way it goes that in low income communities, let's say, that there's no grocery store where a person can buy fresh food, let's say. It could be like that, right? There could mm -hmm. be a total food desert and the only thing available is the quick trip, which is a toast tax to the grocery store. Oh, and every food, fast food restaurant known to man, right? Mm -hmm. And, but the medical establishment still makes money off of poor people, doesn't it? Well, yes. Yes. No, I mean, yeah. So let's say it's a poor person um, with some sort of state insurance. Mm -hmm. The medical establishment, establishment still gets paid by the state insurance. Uh -huh. And where does that money come from? Those are tax dollars. Okay. So, so I'm trying, you know, <laughs> I mean, I know you know this and I know it, but I'm still, I'm still connecting dots yes, go ahead. Ar around, you know, if, if, 
like a hospital system that was rationally based would start a supermarket, right? With a giant produce section and a teeny everything else. Yeah. Right. Well, that's uh, not a part of the model, I'm afraid. Right. So, so, okay. So we painted the picture. I think I'm, I'm, I'm getting a sense of where you have interacted with it. Um, how did you get involved with uh, PBNM, with plant-based nutrition movement? And, and what can it do in the face of, let's, one question at a time. How, how did, how did you get involved before I, before I ask you how you swing the hammer? Let's, let's right. meet the hammer. Okay. So how I got involved. Um, okay. So I'm a registered nurse and I've been in public health for close to 30 years, right? So I've always been attracted to working with the most vulnerable populations, right? Just for way of defi definition, vulnerable populations are single moms, undocumented people here um, from other countries, elderly, homeless, drug addicted or abusing, those populations, right? Um, mm -hmm. Always kind of did home visits and worked in clinics. And my, that's, that's just my passion is to see the people who get the least amount of care get at least decent care, get something they could count on, right? Mm -hmm. And after years and years of doing that, and seeing, and actually I, I you know, started climbing the corporate ladder. I started out as a home visit nurse and then moved into management. I got my master's and all that fun stuff. And it became really super clear that there's no strong commitment to actually getting people to really heal. And the little clinic that I worked in, one of them was really, really pretty progressive. Great, really. We had a little garden in the backyard and people would come and, you know, work vegetables. And when, okay, so we're still in Illinois and Wisconsin. The growing season's not real long up here, right? <laughs> <laughs> but when the weather was nice, like it is now, we would have tomatoes and zucchini and jalapenos and, you know, all kinds of fun stuff. I'm growing out in the yard and people, we'd have cooking classes and we had, um, an agreement with a local health facility, a health club, and the patients could go over there and work out. And I mean, that was really a great, great thing. And the patients still need to come back every three months, which is a standard diabetes protocol, let's say, this is a diabetes clinic. And every three months, we could count on a certain income from these people and we would do certain testing. And it's not like it's all sort of sinister and murky and bad. It's not really, I don't want to painted as like there's this ulterior motive going on. That's the protocol. That's what you do, right? That's mm -hmm. what's accepted. Um, but anyway, over time, I just got really disenchanted with that whole thing. Well, were not I, assume, I Sorry, I assume that one thing you saw was nobody's need for meds ever went down. Correct. They either stayed the same or went up, and eventually right. everybody's went up. Pretty much. It was uh -huh. pretty much that way, yes very hard um, to watch and even harder to be a part of. Mm -hmm. And I have like all my life since literally since I was 15, I have been on the road to like being completely vegan, whole food, plant-based. It started when I was really young. 
Oh, what what happened? <laughs> what what happened? happened to you? <laughs> when I was 15 or lately? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, okay, so we digress. So when, we're, when I was 15, um, that was 1975, so you guys can calculate. I'm coming up on 60 years old now. Um, when I was 15, the price of meat went up like drastically, super high. I don't even know what was going on back then that made it like that. I don't know, but the price of beef went up really high, I remember. And my mother, who was uh, trained and working as a gym teacher, understood the importance of nutrition. She had learned that in college and she took her job very seriously. She was a great mom. And when the price of beef went up like that, which of course dragged with it the price of pork and the price of chicken and the price of everything else went up, right? Um, she would complain that she couldn't afford to put three square meals on the table every day. And back then three squares was, you know, a meat, a starch, milk, and a vegetable. Fruit was extraneous, okay, I believe back then, right? Um, and she would complain and my mom was so important to me. She was like the center of my world. I would do anything to keep her comfortable and calm. Um, she was a great friend. And I remember her going through that and her complaining about that for weeks. And finally, one of my friends and I decided we would just stop eating meat. And that would make it easier on our moms. They wouldn't have to worry about buying X number of meat-based meals a week because we would have you know, bowed out of that whole equation. And um, I remember I came home from visiting this same friend and I said, mom, guess what? Lori and I decided we are not going to eat meat anymore. And that should make it easier on you and her mom. You don't have to buy meat for us. And my mom like lost it. Like, uh, no, you have to eat meat. You have to, because that's how you stay strong. That's how you will grow big. That's how you will, you know, um, keep your muscles healthy. You have to eat meat and you don't worry about the, the grocery budget. I buy the groceries. Your dad is working. We, we got this right. But I'd already made the decision. I'd already made a commitment with my friend. And at that point I was 15. I was just going to be hard headed about it. Right. So um, I think it was that night she made spaghetti and meatballs, which was, she was a great, great, great cook. And uh, she made spaghetti and meatballs, which was a favorite. I brought her my plate. She served the spaghetti and the sauce and two meatballs. And I said, but I'm not eating meatballs. And she said, take your plate and sit down. <laughs> I took the plate. I sat down. And I kind of pushed the meatballs off to the side and I ate the pasta and the sauce. White pasta, by the way, right? That's what they had back then. Right? Right. So uh, my mother was like, she's going to humor me. She didn't figure it would last long. You know, she's going to outlast me on that one. So the next couple of days, same thing. She's putting meat on the plate. I'm not eating it. She's putting it on. I'm not eating it. Finally, she decided that she was going to make um, spaghetti with meat sauce. <laughs> and that way I'd have to eat it, right? So I go up to the, you know, stove. I hand her my plate. She puts the pasta. She puts the meat sauce. And I look, on it, look at it like, you never make meat sauce. What is going on here? 
said, you know, I'm not eating meat, right? And she said, take your plate and sit down. I took my plate and sit down. Now, this is a little bit disgusting, but this is how I was when I was 15. I probably only matured deeper into myself since then. But I took <laughs> the plate. I spun up the first, you know, fork full of spaghetti and I put it in my mouth and I spit out every piece of meat back on the plate which is pretty disgusting to sit at a dinner table with somebody doing that. And that pretty much stopped her from putting meat on my plate ever since. And I just, you know. So so did you, at that point, did you, you said she was really into nutrition. Did you have nutritional arguments in 1975? Like, well, you know, not so much because I really didn't have a grasp on, on what it was for me. It was more of a, I'm taking care of you, mom. You don't have to panic about feeding me meat because I don't need to eat it. Mm-hmm. Right? I didn't really know anything about amino acids or uh, proteins or macronutrients back then. What a micronutrient? I don't know. Vitamin A? What is that? Iron? I don't know. You know, well, I don't know. I was just uh-huh. being 15. And then over years, I just kept that up. So, mm. you know, eventually I stopped eating chicken and fish as well. Not, I mean, I stopped eating dairy products. That was mm-hmm. a result of developing an allergy or, or coming to understand that I had an allergy, which I probably had my whole life. Um, and, you know, eventually stopping eating soy because I developed an allergy to that. So, you know, over years, my diet just slowly um, so changed those, what it is now. Those first months... Mm-hmm. Was it your mother's opposition that kept you going? You were just going to be stubborn about it? Or was like, were you feeling better? Or I think I was just, you know, defiant. I can't remember really feeling any differently. Yeah. So it took I you really a while can't. to come up with actual rationales. Yeah, that's an adult thing. By the time uh-huh. I got to be... I'd say, you know, 18, 19, I'd done a lot of reading by then. That was only three, four years, right? Um, But I'd read books like um, Dick Gregory's Cooking. This is called Cooking for Folks Who Eat, I believe it was. Uh Okay, can you you tell us a little bit about Dick Gregory for folks who aren't familiar with? Wow, okay, not a lot, because I was a baby back then. But um, Dick Gregory in the 70s? was a comedian, I believe it was the 70s. I actually have the book upstairs. I just went on um, Amazon and bought a copy of his book again to replace the one that I had that got uh, destroyed. But um, he was a comedian, an African-American comedian, was very well respected. Um, and he was also a political activist um, as just about any African-American who was alive and breathing back in the late 60s and mid 70s was somehow politically active for the most part. Um, And at some point, you should go upstairs and get the book. But at some point he came to a realization that food was really super important to the health of people. And he changed his way of eating. You know, he moved away from the Southern black cuisine, which of course, came out of slavery, a lot of it. Um, and, you know, as we know, slaves were not given healthy food at all. That was not the deal. 
So he moved away from that style of, of eating and went completely into um, vegetarian and vegan eating. And he took up running marathons and doing all kinds of things to improve his health and to spread the word of um, what, what was yeah. called vegetarianism back then. Not, yeah. we, that whole food plant-based was not a thing. <laughs> right. But to, I mean, to some extent, like his, his comedy, unlike a lot of other black comedians, was about civil rights very pointedly, right? Mm -hmm. Like he was an activist in his comedy. So for him to sit, for him to talk about vegetarianism, I'm wondering if that was, you know, in some ways a really salient justification, like all the, the connections he was making about hierarchy, for example. No, I believe it was. I believe it was. And African-American people were still, were having very much the same, same illnesses then as we have now, right? That hasn't changed much. I think he just used his comedy and his stage, right? His platform to deliver his message and food happened to be a part of empowering the African-American community at that time, one way of doing that. Gotcha. Okay, so let's, uh, let's fast forward. So you, you were vegetarian turning vegan while you were studying nursing and working oh, yes. <laughs> as a nurse. Did, did that impact your professional practice or were, were, did you have sort of a, a bifurcation between, you know, what you were doing personally and what, and like the connection between, because Dick Gregory wasn't a scientist. Correct. And, you know, and there wasn't that, that much science available to lay people back then. Like, you know, you've learned, you learned how to be a nurse and how to take care of people with chronic illnesses and you were becoming vegan. Did, when did those intersect? Mm. <clears throat> Probably always. So <laughs> <laughs> repeatedly and always. Um, so when I first went to nursing school, well, let's even say before I went to nursing school, my big heart's desire was to be a doctor of natural medicine. That was just a drive I had. I studied herbology. I studied um, anatomy and physiology and nutrition. I'd taken all the, the like prerequisites for nursing without actually meaning to <laughs> because I was just interested in human health. And I really have always believed since, I don't know, 17, 18 years old, uh, probably started when I was 16, if I'm, if I'm clear in my timeline. Um, I've always believed that plants held cures. You know, herbology is, is a super wonderful, powerful science, right? And I even remember further back when I was a kid, my grandmother, my father's mother, um, who I did not have a great relationship, but the times that we were, you know, okay with each other was when she was out showing me herbs. She would take me out. We had a woods behind our house and she would take me out and show me, okay, this is blackberry. This is what those leaves are. This is sassafras. This is the only tree that has three leaves that have three different mm. shapes. Where, you know, she would show me things like that. Where, this is where was that? Huh? Where was that? This was in New Jersey. I grew up in New Jersey. Oh, whereabouts? Um, Plainfield. Oh, I'm from South Orange. Okay. Yes. I used, to get, <laughs> I used to get my ass handed to me at the track in Plainfield. My mother taught that class. 
Oh my God. <laughs> I did not know there were so many varieties of last place. Oh, until that's so I, funny. Until I ran winter track and <laughs> competed in I went to Columbia High School. All right, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So Yeah, that was my mother's my mother's stomping ground as a gym teacher. Huh. Yeah. So so I I grew up understanding the power of plants, right? Medicinally. And um yeah, so as I I got older and I started studying stuff in college and, you know, like I said, I was doing all these sort of prerequisites because I just really appreciated and loved human health and allied health sciences, it was called. And then um, one day, one of the, I'll never forget that day, this, uh, one of the nursing school counselors came up to me and said, I'd like to see you in my office tomorrow at noon. And I was like, okay, I don't really know you, but okay, um, I'll meet you. So I went to her office and she said, um, so I've been looking at your records and I see that you're taking all of the prerequisites for nursing. There will be a nursing shortage in the next three to 10 years or whatever she's, you know, something like that. And um, you want to go into nursing. And I said, well, what if I don't want to be a nurse? She said, I've looked at your I, I know what's going on in your life. And I was having some challenges. I was a single mom that's had a baby at that time. And she said, you know, you're going to need a way to provide for your baby. And nursing is a good way to do it. I see that you like all these allied health sciences. Um, you can, I was in Texas at that time at the university of Texas in San Antonio. And she said, um, so here's what you're going to do. You're going to go to the community college and you're going to take statistics with this instructor. You will get an A in that course. After that, you will choose something. She said, after that, you will apply to the University of Texas Health Science Center at San Antonio. You'll get accepted. You'll take this course, this course, this course, and this course. It'll take you two years. You'll have your bachelor's and you'll be able to provide for your child for the rest of your life. And I just said, Wow. Well, it sounds like you met like a mystic who read a crystal ball. Kind of like she was amazing. And that's what I did. I did not fight her. I just was like, well, okay, then <laughs> you seem, you seem very certain. So I must that's right. You must know more than I do. So I went and that's what I did. Um, and nursing has certainly provided me a fine living. Certainly mm -hmm. great education, fine living. Um, but as you know, personally, as you said, you know, did I have to bifurcate or how did that work so that I wasn't having this misalignment in my life? Um, and for quite some time, there was a bifurcation. So I would talk to the patients along one line. Hey, you know, eating this way, having this illness, this is the, you know, how that works, blah, blah, blah. And on the other side, the way I carried myself was, and I would say to my patients, now, I don't eat like that. I, you know, I'm heavy on the vegetable matter, heavy on vegetables, fruits, whole grains. That's what I would do. But the books say you should do this. This is how I do it. That's kind of how I work it. Wow. That's, that's really, I mean, there's, there's so many sort of currents at play there. Um, yeah. I mean, it's really challenging to, to, to live that way, you know, to, to go to a place 
at least 40 hours a week. And certainly when I was in management, it was more than that, you know, you mm -hmm. don't ever leave the place. And when you do, you bring it home with you. Right. Yeah. Um, but so, yeah. So, I mean, I, I have a wondering and I, I want to see if I want to make sure that I say it in a, in a cool way. <laughs> <laughs> it's the, so, um, having like become a vegetarian towards vegan being in, um, introduced to it as a philosophy by Dick Gregory. Was there any sense of like the white medical establishment is a little bit clueless and we need to take care of ourselves better. Like, you know, like there's this whole, this whole gap, like white people don't know about Dr. Sebi and like there's, there's, there's entire like lore in the, in the black community around natural health and sort of distrusting white medicine. I'm wondering, did any of that play into this? Um, some, yeah, for me personally, yes, some, and I didn't even, look at it so much as a, a black and white thing. For me, it was a Western versus Eastern or uh, allopathic, more this allopathic versus non-allopathic. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's a big chasm for someone working in healthcare. Yes. No matter yeah. what. Yeah. 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 Gratefully, um, I don't really have to work in standard American healthcare industry too much these days. I'm like semi-retired and I get to do my own thing, which is beautiful because that, that is, it's a big chasm. It's uh, it's very challenging to, for instance, um, I do believe there is a place in the world for vaccines, right? Mm -hmm. Certainly I was a kid, like you were a kid. I got my small packs shot. I had the big, you know, spot on my arm. I did the polio vaccine on sugar cubes when I was a kid. Um, in nursing school, I had to get my hepatitis B vaccine. So I, I believe there's a place for vaccines, right? I was also managing a clinic when H1N1 came through. And it was a mm -hmm. public health clinic. This was like 2009? Yeah, right after Obama came in, 2009. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, I remember having to set up the how is this patient flow going to go through here for three weeks while we try and vaccinate everybody in the county that we were in, or at least in the, you know, whoever came, we were vaccinating whoever came. And at that time, there was a big, um, some fear around is this vaccine going to cause autism or could it harm an unborn child? And I remember at one point having a, a husband and wife come in and the wife was pregnant, obviously pregnant. She was showing. Woo. I have a, <laughs> we have a beehive in our backyard and the bees are <laughs> coming to talk to me periodically. Um, but anyway, so this husband and wife team came in and um, the wife is pregnant and the husband was like, I think we need to get this vaccine. I'm just really nervous. What would you say? Would you say that she should get the vaccine too? We, I mean, there, was, there were warnings out about pregnant women and the possibility of it causing the, you know, some sort of impact on the fetus. And, um, but it still was recommended that pregnant women get the vaccine. 
let me tell you how tough a position that's to, that is to be in. I personally did not take the vaccine mm-hmm. for H1N1. And I personally declined flu vaccines as often as I can. Yeah. But for this gentleman to ask me, should I take, should, should I take the vaccine? Should my wife take the vaccine? And all I could tell him was the recommendation is that your wife take the vaccine. Mm-hmm. It is yeah, your personal decision, but the recommendation is that she got it. Right. And you, you couldn't say to them, Here are, here's, the, here's what we know, because there wasn't anything that we knew, because it, no. it was such a rush job. Right. And yeah. so that, at that point, everyone sort of falls back on their philosophy in the absence of evidence. Right. Right. And you want to rely on the medical professionals that are speaking on those subjects. Right. And I mean, we are finding ourselves in a very similar sort of position right now. The run up to what are they going to create for the COVID-19 vaccine is, you know, it's kind of a similar thing. Yeah. How fast are they bringing it to market and what kind of testing are we doing? And Who's going to be recommended to get it? And who's going to be required to get it? And it feels like a very different world now in terms of um, trusting the medical profession, in terms of having a, a consensus. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> or, you know, there may be a, a scientific consensus, but it doesn't seem like it once it gets refracted into the kaleidoscope of everyone's social media. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard to know what to believe now. Yeah. And it's hard, it's hard to do what you do, which I feel like I do as well, sort of straddling a medical world. Like I love science and I understand that science is one way of looking at the world. Right. And, you know, that sometimes folk remedies and, and herbs are more appropriate and useful. And then to be both, you know, in the face of something that seems unknown and scary where there's no evidence and a world in which everyone is telling me, Every, every sentence you, you speak is going to tell us what team you're on. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like I'm, I've been straddling this fence a long time, you know, 30 years, just about. So as a nurse, you know, I'm bound by one, one code. Mm-hmm. Right? And as an adult human being, I may not cleave to that code in my own life. Mm. Well, so you said you're, you're semi-retired, you're doing what you want to do now. So how, how did you get involved with the plant-based nutrition movement? So I was having this terrible struggle, really, you know, um, that bifurcation was kind of eating me alive. How do I continue to be true to myself and true to the medical profession? It was really very, very difficult. And um, given the way the industry runs, you know, you have to be pretty much all in or it, it, gets, it just gets really, really difficult. It's very, I don't even know how to say that. Like to maintain your sanity and your ethics, if you're not all in that medical industry Mm. field game, I don't even know what you call that, is very difficult. 
Well, so yeah. um, I just got to the point where for my own sanity, <laughs> it would probably be better if I stepped away. So as, just before I stepped away, though, I was kind of, you know, I don't know, I have this little game that I like to play where I ask the universe for things that are highly probable or at least possible <laughs> um, and see what lands in my lap, right? And it's literally a thing I do, right? So this one day I was saying over a couple days, I said, you know, I really need to get out of nursing in the, in the way that I'm in. I, I, just, I just need to. It's, it's not healthy for me or any living thing. So let me, let me just see what else would I like to do. What I would like to do is manage a nonprofit. Okay? That's what I want. Please send me a nonprofit. <laughs> Magical thinking. And um, I wound up going to a couple of meetups at a lady's house a few miles south of here in Illinois. And after the maybe second time I went to, it was a monthly meetup, uh, and it was all vegan, whole food, no oil cooking meetup. And I said to the lady who who hosted it, I said, you know what? Um, I am to a point in my career where I need to make a change. I really appreciate what you're doing. I love what you're doing. If there's anything I can do to help you, you let me know. I am 100% available to you to do this. I am so tired. I'm up to here with, you know, the standard medical practices and how things are taken care of. I just can't do it anymore. So you call me if you need anything. And I went to another couple of meetings. And at one point she said, um, you know, I'd like to invite you to be on the board of this nonprofit called the Plant-Based Nutrition Movement. And I said, I'm in. <laughs> Absolutely. What do you need from me? She said, send me your resume. Boom. Send her my resume, right? I got uh, brought on. I was uh, accepted on the board. And then I think it was the next month or something, the founder announced that he was stepping down. And I said, um, you know, I would be willing to help keep this organization alive until we find an appropriate person. Mm -hmm. at, that and, at that point, had you been involved enough to know no. its worth? Or no. you, this is just... I was in it one month. I think one month. Okay. Month and a half. I had no, uh -huh. no. <clears throat> so this is this is still following the trust the universe plan. Gotcha. So um, I asked two of the other board members, you know, why don't we share it? I'll take one third, you take one third, you take one third, and together we can, you know, really, really do this thing. We can, you know. Yeah. And were you think you were still working full time as a nurse at that point? Yes. So. <laughs> Okay, so this this is not only a, uh, it's not even a leap. It's just uh, an added, it's an added on your shoulder. Yeah. But I tend to I, I tend to like to spread myself pretty thin. Okay, it's my gig. <laughs> <laughs> Keep taking on more. You know, try to over deliver by taking on a lot of things. I don't know what that is. Anyway, so the other two people declined. The two people I I asked if they would job share with me basically um, declined. And the next meeting came up and um, I was nominated to take the president CEO position. Just me. 
Uh-huh. <laughs> and then, you know, the vote went and yes, I was voted in and I'm good with that. You know, uh-huh. I, you know, you, you, when you ask and it and gets you, dropped in your lap, you say yes, you oh, it's all that's all you can do. That's <laughs> all you can do. Otherwise, you block the next one. <laughs> I you know, so I was like, yes, I'll take it. Yes, I'm happy. I love it. <laughs> love it. Cool. So, so what, what are you guys doing now? Because it's, you know, when I hear, like, there's so much going on online all the time, and I really love discovering organizations that are feet on the ground, that mm-hmm. are bringing people together, and that's what you were doing. And now you're not, obviously. Right. Like, what, what are you looking to provide online that isn't there or isn't enough of or underserving people? So, you know, you got to love the COVID, right? <laughs> it, has, uh, it has given and taken away. <laughs> it, is, it has been a powerful force for, uh, for good and, not, not, and, and challenge, right? I'll say challenge and opportunity. Um, so we, plant-based nutrition movement, which is, if you want to look us up, it's pbnm.org.org, right? pbnm.org. Um, originally was conceived as very much a hip-to-hip, elbow-to-elbow kind of an organization where we support people in their transition or in their learning about the value and power of whole food plant-based eating specifically originally conceived to battle heart disease, right? Because it was created by a cardiologist and by extension, of course, other chronic illnesses. Mm -hmm. So that's how it started. Um, It also, so in that, in that way or, or to that end, let's say, we have support groups, we had cooking classes, we would have potlucks, we would have meetups, um, we did immersions, like take back your health type immersions where we would have prof- medical professionals come in and talk to a group of people who all had heart disease or all had diabetes, that type of thing, and get, you know, do a full day of talking about how to manage that um, and if you're diligent and paying attention, you could possibly eliminate a few medications, drop a few pounds and feel better in a little while. Right. So that was kind of our, um, our strength was the hip to hip, shoulder to shoulder, hand in hand, we'll walk with you, guide you, teach you how to cook this stuff. Um, we'll allow you to experiment with new ingredients and things like that. And then the COVID, right. Right. Which put it all kind of on hold. And we use the time to really re-examine what we wanted to do and how we wanted to deliver it and who was our target audience. What we found was that we had, when we were you know, active and all in person, our target market or the people who took greatest advantage of our courses were white females 55 years old and above. Mm-hmm. We pretty much had that target. That market was covered. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the other sad but a valuable gifts of everybody being home all at once with, you know, corona 
fear and threat was the whole set of things that happened around George Floyd and Ahmaud Aubrey and Breonna Taylor and all of that, you know? So all of the civil unrest between, you know, racial violence and, and all that stuff. And what that allowed was for our board, who basically is mostly white females, 55 years old and above, right? Um, allowed everyone to really examine who are we speaking to when we're, when we're sending out this message about the value of whole food plant-based eating. And what we came to, and it wasn't any through, through any direction of mine, I, happen, I happened to have a most wonderful board of directors. Lovely, beautiful people. And what we came to was that we really need to disseminate this message more widely. And it cannot be that we just stay comfortable with white females 55 years and old and above. We needed to get it to people who really are back to that same vulnerable population that I was working with as a nurse. Mm -hmm. So communities of color and dis disadvantaged communities, communities of low socioeconomic status and things like that. So that's where we're kind of aiming now mm -hmm. is to um, just spread the message more widely and not be comfortable in that one small mm -hmm. environment of people. I can I can imagine you know somebody from the PBNM asking the universe like send us someone who we don't know who or who the group needs to be but we need to expand and you are the you know the perfect person given your life experience and your contacts and your medical understanding when that when the moment came when all of a sudden white people woke up to oh, there's things that need to be done and there's things that I can participate in to make this a more just world that they didn't, they didn't have to look around the room at a bunch yeah. of middle-aged right. white people and say, <laughs> right. where do we find that? <laughs> we, <laughs> we know what to do, right? I, right. We, we have an in. Yeah. 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 It worked well. I mean, it would, it would, that would be a lovely story if, if somebody was going like this at the same time I was going like this and the universe said yes. Well, it has to, right? Yeah. <laughs> that's, the, that's the only way your story works. <laughs> <laughs> there has, if you're the piece, there has to be a puzzle somewhere. I suppose, right? <laughs> yeah. So what, what, um, what are you seeing now that you've, you know, COVID has turned us online? And you have the, you know, PBNM has this renewed or, or more specific commitment to working with, you know, you spoke at the beginning about, you know, vulnerable populations. So working with more vulnerable, like, what are you discovering? Um, you know, it's kind of a new medium for a lot of people, the whole yeah. Zoom thing. Yes, yes, what, yes. What, are the, what are some best practices that you're discovering for reaching vulnerable populations that have not been well served? Yeah, so that's a really excellent question, right? So one of the challenges is that vulnerable populations may not have ready access to computers and unlimited Wi-Fi, right? Mm -hmm. um, so that is definitely one of the things that we have to confront 
we have definitely um, been improving, uh, how it not improving, increasing, augmenting hmm. our online presence, right? So adding more content to our website is one thing. Uh, we're doing more online classes, like cooking classes, demos, things like that we're doing online. We're also reaching out to faith-based communities, even though there still is not a lot of robust attendance at churches, from what I can tell. You know, mm -hmm. people are still kind of skittish, but we are reaching out to faith-based communities to see about the possibility of getting, you know, being able to speak with their uh, parishioners mm -hmm. and spread the word that way. Um, I have worked also with, there's a cancer center, not terrifically far from here. And um, their population was, for, at least for this one class, was primarily Spanish speaking. People from, you know, the, the, the Spanish diaspora, let's call it. So people from Cuba and Mexico and sent further Central America and, you know, Puerto Rico and things like that. And taught cook, teach cooking classes with them specifically related to, you know, building immunity and keeping yourself strong post-cancer treatments mm -hmm. or even, you know, during cancer treatments, things like that. So that's kind of the path we're going. Um, we've also so had a chance. Yeah, sorry. What, what's, what's your strategy for partnering as opposed to preaching? Mm. Well, you know, one, one thing that's really important is work with the group to develop the class. That's super important. I mean, that's an excellent, excellent point you're making there, Howard. I can't, you can't underestimate the importance of that or overestimate well, say, it. Say, say more, because I might've just said it by accident. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so as a public health nurse, <laughs> go back to my nursing stuff. Go. One of the things that's so super important when you're working with people is to make sure that they have some kind of investment and that they feel like they've helped create the thing that you're delivering, right? Otherwise it comes off as patronizing and insulting. Mm. So we look at, you know, engaging the community and ask them, so what would you like to know? I have this whole life of information, right? And in the case of the Spanish speaking group in particular, you know, um, I, I can deliver it fairly well in your, in some version of your native language, right? I'm not real good with Puerto Rican Spanish. I'm pretty good with Mexican Spanish is kind of what I'm saying. Dialects can be different. And, you know, with just like keeping it very humble, very um, on the ground, kind of activity ask and the way I, I like to do it is ask people so how do you use this ingredient when you're at home do you use this ingredient ever at home have you ever heard of this ingredient what do you okay so in Spanish let's say we've got three different dialects or four different dialects in the room what do you call this ingredient so you call it my you call it elote you call it you know popcorn whatever you know how do you call that? What do you call oranges? You know, so just engaging on that level and being super humble, mm. super, super humble is 
those are probably my best suggestions. Uh-huh. Having people participate in the class. When we're talking about cooking, it's like, um, would you be willing to come up here and help me chop these? Okay, you saute that. I'll be over here measuring this. Um, here, I'll give it to you. I'll read the recipe if you dump it in or you read the recipe, I'll dump it in. You know, we do things like that. Mm-hmm. So you can, so but what about there is like when there is a knowledge gap, like, you know, that this is the healthy way to eat. And, you know, we talked about, you know, the slave food, soul food from the South and the, you know, cheese and fried foods. And like, we know that like three generations ago, it was, you know, it was collards and black eyed peas and corn, beans and rice. Uh, how, how do you, when you, when the need to educate arises, how do you educate without patronizing or without making people ashamed of their culture? Mm. Mm. That's a really good question. You know, I guess really what I try to do is just go back. Okay. So in the case of slave food, Mm-hmm. I came from that, right? Mm-hmm. My mother was a serious pig feet and chitlin cooker. Uh-huh. Okay? She had that stuff nailed and she was an excellent cook. I certainly ate that when I was growing up prior to age 15, right? Um, and when I speak to people about that, let's say, you know, African-American people or people from the Caribbean, I also have Caribbean roots. Um, it's really easy to talk about. Okay, so slave owners were not really trying to give good quality food to the slaves. They gave the quality of food that they wouldn't give their dog. Mm. We don't have to eat like that anymore. Mm. And if we look at, I mean, you can, we can easily look at the set of diseases and illnesses that impact communities of color and it's Mm. this very often the same diseases that impact any other community by the way right it's the same stuff right it just seems to impact communities of color maybe more quickly and more brutally right and just talking like that it's i have not really had a problem Mm. you know having people you know, walk with me. Let's walk through this. Uh-huh. <laughs> Haven't had a problem, you know. Now, that doesn't mean that people will automatically switch off and stop eating like that. Maybe it's a certain amount of not being attached to the outcome, mm-hmm. you know, because people go at it at their own pace and some people never switch, even with the knowledge, even having, you know, learned. Food is a very sensitive, personal am emotionally charged subject and reality it's it it you know if you if somebody when when i was 10 told me that my mother was trying to poison me every time she gave me pig feet i probably would have like fought back yeah (laughs) (laughs) but you know some people come at it how they come at it i think probably the best thing is like no attachment to the outcome, you know, commitment that people have health and um, vitality and live long, productive lives 
without burden of disease, but no attachment. And do you find it helps to have the liaison to those communities look and sound like those communities? Oh, it's critical. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's critical. Yeah. It is um, usually wrought for failure. If somebody, and I hate to say it like this, but this is our reality, right? If a Caucasian person walks into a community of color, there's an immediate sense of distrust, mm -hmm. right? And that's probably coming from both directions, let's say. And that sense of distrust can be um, <clears throat> really detrimental, excuse me, <clears throat> really detrimental to the um, outcome of the project. So it's super helpful to have somebody who at least has similarity in background, similarity in appearance mm -hmm. to the culture that you're working with. Yeah. So does PBNM have any lessons for the broader plant-based community about representation? Wow. Yeah, I would say so. Um, I think in a lot of areas, whole food plant-based eating has been championed by, you know, the, the Caucasian community, the white yeah. community, right? It's been taken on and it's, I don't know. I don't know. It's almost like, uh, you know, you've heard, you've probably heard it too. Like people say it's almost elitist, you know, uh -huh. um, and the whole, uh, you know, animal rights movement is kind of, you know, that same group of people, maybe a little bit younger, elitist, young white kids, you know, uh -huh. fight for that stuff, even though that's not entirely true. Right. Right. Be people who don't have their own problems. Oh yeah, it's a, right. yeah. It kind of becomes a, a first world issue, right? right. <laughs> <laughs> Which it really kind of is, because in other parts of the world, people just want to eat, right? And they right. don't get to say, "I'm not eating that." They just want to eat. But in America and in places where I'll say first world countries, where we have those kind of choices and we can make those kind of statements, um, it would be great to reach out and work with people of all colors and all, let's say all nations, you know, all colors, all flavors, all shapes, all sizes, all languages, just, you know, reach out. It, it should not be, it shouldn't, it shouldn't be a racial thing. Now there certainly are, I read a statistic or a, a statement not long ago that African-Americans are like fastest growing in the plant-based community, you know, plant-based population is what mm -hmm. which I'm really grateful to hear. It's one of the ways, it's one of the ways to keep ourselves healthy and that's everybody it really does. It's not a color thing. It's just not a color thing. It's just a human body thing, you know, it's what we need to do. Right, although in terms of the messaging, like when I started, you know, becoming vocal as a plant-based advocate, um, I believed that, you know, I had science and, you know, and I didn't have a racist bone in my body. Oh, yes. Right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> right, which, you know, to a certain extent, like I didn't bear anyone any ill will. 
and I wasn't Rick, I wasn't cognizant of all the biases that I had accumulated. And the way I would speak was, I would say was very condescending around, well, you should know that, you know, if you eat this, if people eat this way, that will be, you know, that we will have more justice. And like, you know, it wasn't a ground up thing. It was, yeah. well, I've, you know, I mean, it was whatever the, the racist, classist version of mansplaining is. Yes. Like, oh, I've, <laughs> I've discovered the truth and color shouldn't matter because I'm really smart. Right. Got it. Got it. <laughs> you know, you know how many friends I made uh, probably that. a lot, huh? <laughs> <laughs> right. So, but you know, and I and I'm seeing it now in terms of the importance of diversity in veg fests, diversity on plant-based panels in medical conferences. Um, just, just that I can't carry water everywhere water needs to be carried. Right. That's I'm, right. Not the, I'm not the person to do it. Right. Well put. Well put. You know, mm -hmm. I, I wonder too, and I, so it, like that comes from both ends, right? So not only are, if, if we look around, not only are there people of other flavors, shapes, sizes, colors, nationalities, and languages that actually live this life, right? But the people who put these conferences together I think also have their eyes open, similar to the way my board has their eyes open now. You know, mm -hmm. okay, we can't just look for people that look like us or, and ignore everyone that doesn't, right? We have to mm -hmm. consciously bring other people in. I love what you said, you know, you can't carry water to everybody that needs water. It's, it's so beautiful. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, Not everybody will drink from your cup, right? right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, and, you know, maybe this is a transitional phase of the human experience, but it's forcing a lot of clueless, well-meaning white liberals to acknowledge that color is a thing. Yeah. For, you yeah. know, for the time being. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Beautiful. Yep. Uh, we need it. It's time. Yeah. How We're overdue. <laughs> Yeah, not not to not to drag us too far, but uh, there's a story today, wasn't there, in, in Kenosha? Yes, there was. Is that near you? It, uh, yeah, a few miles north. <laughs> I mean, like this. <laughs> Crazy. Crazy. Nobody hears of Kenosha. <laughs> Nobody. You know what? I'm just going to, I just realized I've been hearing the, it's going to change my name. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's funny. Um, yeah, so last night there was uh, an incident, and I don't, of course, we don't know all the details. We probably never will know all the details. But there was, from what I understand, two women in some sort of an altercation, and, a, and these are African-American people. Um, a man stepped in to try and... I don't know, break up the fight is the story that's in the news right now. And at some point the police were called and at some point, and this is where there's video, viral video available for people to watch if they want to see it. Um, the, the gentleman who was trying to break up the fight 
at some point the, the police were confronting him and he turned and started to walk away. And uh, I understand he was tased once. Maybe the taser didn't work or it just caused him to keep walking away. I don't know. And um, he went to go get in his car and the police officer fired at point blank range, seven shots into his back, from what I understand. The, the man's children were in the car and watched, his, watched their father get killed like that. And that sparked, uh, between the video going viral and people right there watching it firsthand and all that, it sparked quite the um, little riot down in downtown Kenosha. Um, you know, car lot, cars burned and mm. empty buildings set on fire and, you know, there's all kinds of stuff. We had a curfew imposed last night. I think it was, you know, everybody was supposed to settle down and be out of the way by seven or eight o'clock. And it went till six o'clock this morning. Yeah. A mess. Uh, yeah. Quite and a mess. You know, and I, I want to, again, tur turn to you. you. You've spent 30 years, you know, outlasting the, you know, the medical system. You thought, well, you outlasted your mother. How do we outlast this and it's wow. just like like uh, like you fatigue like you another 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 yeah how do you how do you outlast wow so you know how you ask them some really wonderful questions you know i so appreciate your 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 approach so well, when, you know, when you when you when you come across a well with clear, pure water, you keep you keep pulling on the bucket. So it's it's a testament it's a testament to um, the conversation that you're, you're well, contributing you. to. Thank you. This is really great. So, you know, I have reached the age which I never thought I would ever say this. I reached the age where I've seen enough. You know, I can reach. I can look back over my years. Um, so I was born in 1960, you know, and um, all that happened in 1964 and 65 and 68 and 70 and 75 and all those stuff is formed who I am, right? So I am really, how's that, was that a Tom Petty song? I was born a rebel. I think that's me. And I guess it really just requires holding on to your ethics, holding on to your morals, and, you know, just standing and carrying the banner for what's right, you know? And, you know, one of the things that's so confusing now, like I said before, you don't know what to believe, you know? So there's what comes across the news, and I have great respect for journalists, you know, um, However, I think there is huge pressure given the news cycle. This is not, this is not earth shattering what I'm going to say, but there's huge pressure on, on news outlets and journalists to get the stories out 24 hours a day. I mean, that stuff doesn't stop, right? So you have to be really super careful about what we listen to and what we watch and what we take on as being true. Every story that I read these days, I like go back and try and research where to come from who's got investment in making it look this way, what kind of inflammatory language is being used, how much hyperbole is in there. Because when we were kids, Howard, journalists didn't talk like this. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? The language was at least supposed to sound neutral. 
You expose the sound objective, right? That doesn't happen in a lot of cases anymore. There's a lot of hyperbole and inflammatory stuff and outright bias and craziness in the news um, these days. So how do we outlast it? You know, fighting for what we believe is right, um, reaching out to people who are who don't look like us, trying to, you know, bring somebody else or I go with you, you know, understand it from another point of view. So, okay, sidebar. My husband, just like I was born a rebel, my husband was born a rebel and then like a somehow transformed himself into some sort of conservative person. Okay. okay. <laughs> so we have rather heated conversations about um, his point of view versus my point of view. And, you know, somewhere in the middle is the truth, I guess. But even being willing to have those conversations and not um, brand somebody as, you know, you're crazy, you're a lunatic, I don't have to listen to you, um, you don't know what you're talking about. Um, you know, just being willing, open to the conversation and, and educating yourself in all kinds of ways. I think that's the only way around it, you know? Mm. One of the things about in medicine is, you know, in nursing, do no harm. You know, that's not always easy. Mm. But I try to carry that. You know, just do no harm. Try not to take somebody out of the kneecaps if I don't have to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it's something. This is uh, quite a wild time. You know, as they say, unprecedented. Yeah. And that's a nice way to put it. It's wild yeah. time. Okay. Well, since, since you mentioned Tom Petty, yeah. um, I, want, I want to end by asking you a question that w- I've started doing this and I find that people really like, like it makes them happy to, to answer it and for other people to hear it. Okay. Uh, what's some music that you're listening to these days or that you like that other people don't know or, you know, that a lot of people wouldn't be familiar with? What would you like to share? Wow. Okay. So... Actually, the, this is so funny. Okay, so I'm going to just like go back a little bit. Okay. I have always, 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 always loved Bob Marley. Always. Mm. Always, always. This is why I wear my hair in dreadlocks, to be honest, because I love Bob Marley. Well, that's how it started anyway. Um, I love Krishna Das. Mm. love that you know chanting uh that is just soul food honestly Uh those are my go-tos when i just need like bring it down you know um i also will listen to hang drum (laughs) hang drum yes okay i'm not familiar yeah as very uh you know repetitive and sort of meditative kind of stuff. Okay. Um, and then classical music. I, you know, I tend these days, honestly, I tend to listen to music that doesn't have any words or words mm. that I, that words that I can't understand. Uh-huh. It's gotta be in a language that I don't speak. So I don't understand the words. So that's um, <laughs> one reason, uh, one reason of many that I like 
Krishna Das music. I understand some of it only because I've been told what the Sanskrit is. Uh-huh. I don't really understand Sanskrit. Um, yeah, because I don't, so much of music with words it just makes me very sad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. So, All right. So Bob Marley, Christian Dust, and Hangdrum. I'll, I'll, put, yeah. I'll put up links. I'll find a good uh, YouTube link for, for each of them, and, and people can go. When they're, when they're looking for sort of peace and transcendence. Yeah, Bob Marley absolutely would be like Three Little Birds or No Woman, No Cry. All right, so um, before we go, how can people find you? Can, can they, uh, people make donations to PBNM? How can, they, how can they be in touch? Oh, absolutely. So PBNM, uh, we have a website where you can, you are certainly welcome and encouraged, invited to donate. Um, that's pbnm.org. Um, I also have my own website, which uh, has, I'll give you one name. It actually has two names. I'm in the process of changing the name, but the one that's probably easiest to get through on would be balance forward health and wellness.com. Balance forward forward health and health, wellness. Health and wellness.com yeah okay i'll put i'll i'll put a link for those who want to check out the show notes yeah yeah Um, that would be great and both of those websites we have um recipes and blogs and um you know places where people can ask questions and get in touch meryl fury i've had such a good time getting to know you and talking to you and thank you so much for the work you do with uh, PBNM and elsewhere in the world and, and for taking the time today. Well, thank you so much, Howard. This has just been a pleasure, really, really. And thank you for doing the work you do, getting the word out, keeping the word going. Love that. All right, beautiful. Let's, and so, someday maybe we'll meet. That would be good. <laughs> I'd like that. All right, take care. You to come to Wisconsin anytime. Right on. You have a uh, plant-based cheese, right? We do. Good. And brats. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. All right. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. I hope you had as much fun as I did with that podcast episode. If you want to watch the video or check out the links or look at the show notes, you can do so at plantyourself.com slash 429. If you'd like to support the mission of the show, you can become a patron over at plantyourself.com slash gift. You can subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you consume audio. Um, What else can you do? You can share this episode, let other people know, uh, send an email saying, hey, I just listened to a really good podcast. I think you'll enjoy this conversation. Send it to one person. If everybody who listens did that, I would. Uh, drum roll for my math skills, please double my listenership. And I know this isn't, uh, you know, I'm not doing this for fame or fortune, but there is something really nice about knowing that I'm reaching a large enough audience to be interest to be able to be interesting to people who only agree to go on podcasts with a certain was a certain threshold. So uh, that that's something that frustrates me sometimes that people will say, well, how many listeners do you have? And I'll say the number. And they'll say, well, no, I only go on podcasts that were there. They reach, you know, half a million a week or 50,000 a week, and I'm not near there. So um, if you help me get there, I can get some of those people. (laughs) Um, What else is going on? Um, Garden News harvested the grapes. So I got about a quart. 
in past years when I harvested grapes, which was the last time was I think three years ago, I was getting buckets, five gallon buckets, and we got a quart. So I think what's happening is the birds are getting them, which I can live with. The birds provide many valuable services uh, in our in our yard and they sing real pretty. But I think I want to put a little bit of the netting up to see if we can't just get a few more um, next year. They're delicious. They're very, very sweet, almost too sweet. Um, they each have three pits and a very, very leathery, thick skin. So, you know, not your not your picnic um, seedless grapes, but uh, nonetheless amazing. Um, we have planted lots of baby greens, which I'm trying not to step on because I don't always recognize them. So as I pull out the last of the tomato plants and we pull out the flax, uh, which my wife is now starting to learn how to weave into cordage, which is really, really cool. Um, so hopefully we'll have, um, you know, chard and kale with that within uh, the next month or so. What else is going on? I want to. Uh, oh, the running news. Right. <clears throat> so this week I'm taking off from running. I went on Sunday planning to do a brisk six miler because it was beautiful, cool, breezy. And I ended up walking. I was just exhausted. And I talked to Josh and he agreed. I'm just going to take the week off. So I'm doing like three to four miles of walking in the morning. So an hour to an hour and a half and getting lots of sleep, eating really clean. Yesterday I fasted and on Saturday I'll go back to uh, ultimate Frisbee practice and see if I just needed to recharge those batteries. So I'll let you know. Maybe this is a good idea. Maybe it isn't. But, um, you know, as Josh often says, do something even if it's wrong and you will learn from it. Uh, so time for thanks. Thanks to Will Ridenour for allowing me to use Sabali Dawn. The Dance of Peace is the theme music for this show. Check out willridenour.com for more of his beautiful West African Kora music. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. Let me start with Teresa Koppel, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Sharon Hirschman, Linda Ayat, Holm Hedegaard, Isa Tuzinwa, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Heather O'Connor, and Carolyn Jensen as a, a random sampling. And then the last bunch, Olga Sidorowska, Allison Corbett, Richard Stone, Lauren Vaught of Edible Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owen, Sagar Nayak, Erica Piedra, and Danielle Roberts for your generous support of the podcast. If your name was not read and you would like it to be and you'd like to support the show, again, plantyourself.com slash gift. Now would be a really good time. All right, that's it for today. As always, be well, my friends.